0: Welcome, everyone, to the Human Everywhere podcast. I am one of your hosts, Jason Bott, and we are excited to have you here. Let me turn you over to our other host to introduce himself and then our co-host for today. Hello, hello. I'm UBC
1: Simignetti. Yes, thank you. Uh, thank you all for, for joining us. Uh, this is the first in a series of uh, episodes that we're going to be recording for the Human Everywhere podcast. So thank you for being here. And let me turn it over to Aliris Allman, one of our co-hosts for today. Hi.
2: Hi, how are you doing? Um, Welcome everyone. I am the founder of Deep Space Predictive and here with my co-founders and co-hosts as we evolve. And we're very excited to talk about human everywhere and everything that that means. Mark? Hello, everybody. I'm program
3: officer supporting programs and projects, and I'm excited to learn more about what we're going to do next.
0: And to tie everybody together, human everywhere does come, just as the lyric says, out of Deep Space Predictive. Deep Space Predictive was founded over two years ago, and we are focused on just exactly as what our title says, making sure that as we go into space, as we leave this planet, that we maintain the concept of human everywhere. And we are honored today to have an absolute great, uh, honestly, thought leader, philosopher, someone that I have had the opportunity to work with uh, now for actually several years working with, uh, in the realm of fiction, uh, the incredible Frank White, the author of the book called The Overview Effect that is now just out in its fourth edition. Uh, Aliris, I'm going to actually turn it over to you to kind of just talk about and kind of prime us and get us going on the conversation.
2: Thanks, Jason and Frank. Welcome, and we are so honored to have you as our first guest on the Human Everywhere podcast. And it's no, um, it's not uh, unintentional that you are our first guest. We are really um, intentional about our perspective, and I'm using that word specifically of Human Everywhere as we continue to explore who we are as humans and where we're going as humans, we have to remember that everywhere we go, we take ourselves with us. And when we take ourselves with us into different places, we change and we evolve and how we interact with our environment changes. And as you've noted in your book, in the overview effect, when we do go into space, we change. We evolve. We evolve, and there's different things that happen to us as humans, as the perspective of where we are changes, and how that impacts how we come back to Earth. Because we're hoping to bring everyone, you know, back to Earth, but we're also sending people who will never be back to Earth. So I'd love to hear your um, uh, your thoughts on one, the human everywhere, and how that ties into your philosophy about the overview effect. Mm-hmm.
3: Well, thank you so much. It's a great honor to be your first guest, and there is so much to say about your introductory question that I'm sure I won't be able to share everything that it makes me think about. But I, I really do uh, applaud the terminology "human everywhere" uh, in the sense that I think what the overview effect as an idea and experience tells us is exactly what you're saying, which is that when human beings have gone into low earth orbit or on lunar missions, they've looked back at planet earth. That has caused a shift in their own identity. It's caused a shift in their understanding of what it means to be human. And it has caused a change in their understanding of where we are and where we're going within the universe. So it really is all about being human. And that is an interesting part of space exploration that I think was not fully understood for a long time, a very long time. And recently NASA has produced an amazing series called Down to Earth. I don't know if everybody knows about that, but it was catalyzed by a visit I made to Johnson Space Center, where I interviewed a total of 10 astronauts. And it was really a continuation of what I've been doing for 35 years, which is interviewing astronauts and asking them about their experience. NASA took those and produced 19 short videos and a 30-minute documentary called Down to Earth. I bring this up because it was NASA fully and completely recognizing that the human experience is a big part of what NASA is doing, which is bringing this astronaut message to the people on Earth about who we are and where we're going. Um, But that's happening all over the place right now. it's really amazing that we've gone from a book that was published in 1987, we've gone from that to a global movement to bring the overview effect down to earth because the feeling is it will cause a shift in consciousness worldwide that we need. And I'm close by saying we need it on this planet, but we need it as the foundation for our evolution outward into the solar ecosystem.
0: Thank you, Frank. Um, You know, I I think for those who have not had an opportunity to read the overview effect, uh, it is an absolutely uh, stunning conversation that, like you said, it just looks at different astronauts and look at what that experience is. Um, You know, one of the things, uh, and I, in our pre-prep, I didn't actually throw it out, but one of the things I thought was really interesting was, um, and understand for for me as a student of mythology, Uh, Your latest book actually is The New Camelot and exploring the idea of what the overview effect means for this and looking at the astronauts and um, kind of how we're going to uh, transform. I mean, the Camelot myth is this perfect absolute container of what it means to achieve the new ideal. Specifically, if you look at it as, you know, Arthur taking this rundown, disparate hopeless people um, and pulling together the greatest people and inspiring them to go and actually catapult and lift up. Um, Curious, talk a little bit about from your perspective of uh, what that new Camelot myth would actually be for us uh, and how it actually affects life on earth for us to capture that new mythology and that new vision as we catapult ourselves out there.
3: Well, I should say probably that most of my work uh, does emerge from epiphanies. (laughs) Uh, You know, but it's important to understand how an epiphany happens, at least for me. It's usually a moment of of blinding insight, but it's been brewing for years and years and years. So uh, my interest in astronomy started when I was 10 years old. My mother gave me a book called stars. And that began a long journey that led to the overview effect. We can come back and talk about that epiphany. But when I was 10 years old, I, I was also fascinated with King Arthur and Camelot. And I just never quite understood why. Why am I so obsessed with Camelot, King Arthur? That's very much what you're saying, Jason. Uh, I, I kind of got that part. But there's a film called Excalibur which is, I believe, the best film about Camelot ever made. It was made in 1981 or thereabouts. And honestly, uh, my wife Donna was watching it, and I've seen it 20 times. And I walked into the room. I said, oh, what you watching? She said, oh, Excalibur. Uh, I said, oh, I'll watch it with you. And uh, having seen it so many times, there was a moment, where one of the knights realizes what the Holy Grail is. The Holy Grail is not the cup that Jesus drank from at the Last Supper, it's the unity of Britain. So Arthur was all about unifying Britain, as you said. And it hit me in that moment, well, that is what Apollo was for John F. Kennedy. Kennedy was obsessed with Camelot. Uh, When Kennedy was young, he was very ill and he used to read the Camelot stories. And then everybody knows that Camelot was his favorite musical. But then some people realized that, that the Kennedy administration was called Camelot. It was characterized as Camelot. And all of it just hit me and I realized the Apollo astronauts were the grail knights for Kennedy. And it struck me that he knew what was gonna happen if we did Apollo, that he had an insight into what this view was going to cause. That book was the easiest book I've ever written. I mean, it just came out. And one last thing that is a secret hiding in plain sight I don't know if you knew this, but John Kennedy did not want Apollo to be a race. He wanted to cooperate with the Soviet Union. He made it very clear that he thought it would be really interesting if the United States and Soviet Union could go to the moon together. He approached Nikita Khrushchev in 1961 just after becoming president and and at a summit conference said, why don't we do this together? It's it's insane for us to compete. And of course, Khrushchev said, "Net, <laughs> no, we're so far ahead of you. I can see what you're getting at, but I'm not into it. And then after the Cuban Missile Crisis, where we almost destroyed the planet, the Soviets started getting interested in it. And in 1963 at the UN, President Kennedy proposed a joint mission. And he even went further and said, why not? everybody, why not all the nations be part of Apollo? Or whatever, they might have changed the name, I don't know. But of course, he was assassinated, and so it didn't happen. But it's very clear that he wanted to begin unwinding the Cold War through cooperation with the Soviets, and he saw a mission to the moon as a way to do it. And so, to me, that's Camelot, the unity of our planet it's not a place, it's an idea. Camelot, yes, it was a place physically, but it was really an idea of a a way of being. And instead of knights exploiting people, knights helping people, Uh, you know, instead of the king ruling over people, it was bringing out the best in people. I think that's the new, the new camelot of our time is this idea of a unified planet. And I want to say one last thing that came out in writing that book, which is that doesn't mean we get rid of the diversity of our planet. It's good that we're different, it's good that we're not all the same. And the astronauts, when they look at the Earth from orbit, it doesn't blank out their minds that there's great chaos and diversity and difference. They know that, but they can hold two ideas at once. Great diversity, but hey, from this point of view, uh, it's a unified whole system.
1: How does what you're talking about, how does this? the fact that William Shatner and, and, uh, you know, and that crew got to go up into space for 10 minutes how does that change anything? Like how does that change or how does that impact your philosophy and your discussion?
3: I think it does. I think it changes everything, Uh, I really do. When I was writing the Overview Effect in 1987, don't forget, I had a hypothesis at the time and it really was not about astronauts. It was about people living in O'Neill communities and they would see the earth in the sky every day, and it wouldn't be a big deal, but their their mental processes would be very different from ours. Our mental processes are very different from 12th century Europeans, you know, or 13th or 14th century, you know, pre-Kepler, pre-Copernicus thinkers. We don't go over it all the time, and I understand some people still think the earth is flat and all that, but for the vast majority of human beings start at a level that's very far advanced from people living in in medieval times. And my assumption was that these O'Neillians would start at a point we're trying to get to about the Earth. Um, And then I had that epiphany and then I thought, well, there are no such people. What am I going to do? Where do I get my data? And that's when I started interviewing astronauts as proxies, and then that shifted the whole conversation to: Wait a minute, this is a really incredible experience for people. It's not ordinary. Uh, it's a good experience. How do we share it with people who haven't gone into orbit or or haven't gone to the moon? And it was obvious. I didn't have an epiphany about that. I just wrote down, there's two ways to do it. There are two ways to do it. One is commercial spaceflight. The other is virtual reality, or I think I called it simulation. And it was so clear if we could get everybody everywhere, humans everywhere, to have this experience, uh, life on earth would likely change. That was in 1987. And I kept writing that in there every time we publish the book. Well, suddenly again it's like Sputnik. All of a sudden we have really incredible we have some incredible virtual reality renditions of the overview effect and we now have several people who have flown and you know they've had a variety of flights from Virgin Galactic which is one way to do it. Uh, to Blue Origin, which is another way, to Inspiration 4, which is very different. Uh, so we've had uh, suborbital hops, which is what Blue does. We've had, um, I don't know exactly the term we would use for Virgin, it's really different from anything that went before. But then Inspiration 4 was an orbital flight. Why is it so different? Well, for the most part, professional astronauts never went to experience the overview effect. They experienced it as a byproduct. And Joe Allen was the first retired astronaut I interviewed for the book. And he said, for all the reasons pro and con for going to the moon, nobody said we should do it to look at the Earth. But that may be the most important reason looking back on that it's kind of hard to believe oh this this is this is probably the biggest benefit of the space program and it was totally or essentially unintentional as I said I think President Kennedy knew what it was but um, now now we have people going for the experience they've heard about it they have a name for it that's why they're going and they're open about it Of course, they may do some other things. I know, especially on Inspiration4, they had time to do some experiments like professional astronauts, but they are fulfilling something Apollo astronauts said over and over again, which is, we're not the best people to tell you about this incredible thing we experienced. I hope we can get poets and artists and teachers. Well, now we are. And William Shatner is a great example. I mean, I, anyone who saw him emerge from that, that capsule, and wants to say, I don't think there's much to this overview effect stuff. I don't know how they can say it because he was clearly affected. And I mean, if you just watch it, I don't want to get into all the detail about it, but he, he doesn't join in all the celebrations. He's clearly moved and needs to be alone. When uh, Jeff Bezos comes over to him and starts listening, he pours out his heart as to what he saw and felt. And that was an extraordinary description, but Really, if you talk to the other citizen astronauts, they'll be saying similar things. And it's interesting, because I have been using an equation that says the impact of the overview effect depends on distance, time, and openness. So how far you go, how long you're there, and how open you are, those are the three variables. I. I'm not sure that's going to hold water. I mean, the part about openness does. And Edgar Mitchell told me that. He said, the key is how open you are to it. But, you know, I'm really seeing that in a big way because Shatner's experience, he didn't go far. He didn't have much time. But he must have been amazingly open to it because, you know, (laughs) we all saw it. We all saw how he how he reported it. So going back to your question, uh, I think experiencing the overview effect should be a human right. Uh, I believe we should have everyone, humans everywhere should experience it. It's almost like a responsibility because it really reveals who we are, where we're going. Um, It's a shift in identity that everyone should have the opportunity to have. And eventually, the quality of it will become quantitative. And I believe if we can bring the overview effect down to Earth, we can begin to tackle some of the issues that are really so hard for us to deal with from a surface point of view. We need to see the Earth as a whole system. And you know. People ask me very often, oh, can't you experience it without going into space? Well, no, not really. You really can't. You can have awe, you can have wonder, you can understand that we're all connected. You can have intellectual apprehension of it. Yes, you can have a lot of it. Um, But the kind of thing I'm hearing from astronauts, really, I think, you either have to have an incredible VR simulation or or you need to go.
2: Well, it's
1: like it's to me, it's like jumping out of a plane. Right. Yeah. Like you you can you can talk about it, but there is nothing like the in my case, the absolute fear <laughs> and terror of leaving that plane, even with somebody strapped on your back. Because yeah. your whole body feels it, right? I mean, it's a completely different feeling. Yeah, yeah. And we're supposed to feel, and that—that that to me, like that's the thing. It's like I, I love that you said it's like a, a human right because it's it that it, it's sort of the only way to bridge the gap to get to evolve, right? It's like the one one right. major ingredient that y- you can't get in any other way. Honestly, I don't think.
2: Okay. it's right. a whole. I wanted to. Uh, oh, I was going to say, frankly when okay. you were saying that it should be a right for everyone. And the, the people that I really think about are flat earthers uh, cause they wholeheartedly <laughs> believe that the earth is flat and the VR doesn't give you that experience cause that's generate, it's human generated. But when you go in, into space and see something where you see this earth floating in this black space and it's real and it just really makes a whole, um, as Yubi was saying, the experience of what it means and where you're living. It's like you can be in a room in a house, but until you go outside the house and see that, oh, this is where I'm living and how it impacts everything else of my experience, I think the overview effect and going into space and having that moment, no matter how small, whether it's the Virgin Galactic, I'm going to call it, um, um, it's, it's a tourist experience. It's like a it's more the tourist experience because you're just there, it's brief versus um, uh, Blue Origins experience. And of course, Inspiration 4 and Dragon is a whole another level of that, getting into that citizen astronaut and also commercial astronaut and understanding that commercial piece of what's bringing this to the larger audience and to the larger population. Because if we all had to wait to be NASA certified, that obviously isn't going to happen. Now it's a financial um, barrier, which is achievable by a larger population, a smaller, larger population than astronauts. But then as you go and as time goes by, it's going to be as ubiquitous as, um, as commercial air flight because mm-hmm. we will have that opportunity. We will have it at scale. So I really think it's important that we recognize the opportunity of commercial space, not negating what NASA's doing, because NASA's there to take us to the next level. It's like, okay, we're going to go scout out something for you. So commercial space, when you come up, here's the next place you can go. Um, I really think one thing we learned in, you know, uh, about the vision of 100-Year Starship is you have to think about your future now in order to achieve it and do the different steps in order to make that happen. So um, we're, we're lucky enough to see the second phase of that evolution that's getting us there closer.
3: Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I, I think we ought to mention too, another development here, uh, you know, Joe Allen. First of all, before I mention Joe Allen again, we ought to give kudos to NASA. And Roscosmos, all the government programs, because like the internet, we wouldn't have an internet without the government. Um, you know, we wouldn't have Blue Origin and all of these other uh, uh, opportunities without NASA and absolutely other, other government programs. So first of all, and all the NASA astronauts who risked their lives to bring back the message. So first of all, I'll say that. Going back to Joe Allen. He said that it wasn't planned, right? Uh, This experience of seeing the earth in this way. Well, another thing that's going on right now, I'm on the board of advisors of Space for Humanity. Space for Humanity is intentionally creating a situation where they will be funding people to have a flight. They will be training people in how to experience the overview effect and then what to do when they come back. And in order to be selected, you have to have a project that's consistent with the sustainable development goals of the UN. So here, we now have Space for Humanity and other organizations who've realized what this is, realized, okay, we can make use of this for social change and for the good. So we have a real opportunity, as you said, to shape our future. And that's another thing we need to understand. We lost something incredible when President Kennedy was assassinated because that ended his dream. Uh, You know, it survived to some extent on the International Space Station, which is an amazing accomplishment. Um, It's kind of our Camelot in orbit, you might say, but um, we we got that. But just think, if Apollo had been a joint Soviet American Indian or Chinese mission, and you know it had all started that way, we wouldn't be constantly talking about the space race, the space race, the space race. You know, we'd be talking about humans cooperating in uh in space so we have the opportunity again we can project our nationalistic behavior our 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 human behavior that we're not that proud of uh, our exploitative behavior out into the solar ecosystem or not we have a choice and often when i talk to people in the space community we say do we want a Star Trek future or an expanse future? And even people who love the expanse as a TV show say, I've actually heard actors on the show say, well, that's not the future I want. Um, And that's exactly it. Star Trek is a unified planet, a federation of planets, exploring, not exploiting, prime directive. And then the expanse is Earth and Mars, at each other's throats, and the belters feeling oppressed. <laughs> and again, nothing, nothing set. But we can see trends in both directions, can't we?
0: Yeah, we're de- we're definitely at the transition point. I think what even just what we've seen this last two weeks is a threshold point. You know, you know, we mentioned the orbital reef. Uh, you know, Sierra Space and, you know, uh, Blue Orbit's attempt at a commercial space station. That transition is happening. You're right. It is the question of do we head towards that utopian approach of Star Trek or do we end up in just as you said, that we take and not actually evolve as humans, that we basically take life as it is right now and we just extrapolate it out to the stars. And I think that's what these questions are really important. I think a lot of us can recognize even like um, looking here at Earth itself, we if we continue on the same path that we are right now, without alteration, without some form of intervention, we are headed for a very, very dangerous uh, potential future. And I think that's what these conversations are big about. Uh, I know we're coming down the last 10 minutes. I wanted to ping over to Aliris to provide a, you know some of her thoughts. And then Frank, allow you just to kind of close up with kind of you know any final remaining thoughts for you but Aliris first
2: Thanks Jason and you know this conversation has been great because Frank you've given us a really rich history and purposefulness of the overview effect where it can go where it can take us. Uh, I think right now as Jason was just mentioning the commercial capabilities that are emerging now are set to take us into a whole new direction. And the caution and the hope of human everywhere is not to deny the things that are part of our personalities, a part of our experience and our culture as humans, because we're not perfect. There are things that we need to work on. There are challenges that we still have here on earth that we will absolutely take with us to space. Those are biases, cultural differences, and things like that but in recognizing that we have the opportunity to start to tweak how we experience things, what those experiences mean, how we learn from them and how we really set up opportunities for learning here on earth. And what i love for you to talk about, Frank, as we, as we close up here is like, what are your wishes for us as we go into the next phase, the fourth uh, view of the overview effect and what we wanna learn and take with us as part of our training going into space? Oh,
3: well, thanks for asking. Um, I think you've, you've, you've set the question up beautifully. I guess I go back to the Camelot vision, I, in, in ending that book, I mentioned that Camelot may seem utopian and unachievable, but if we don't hold out a vision of possibility we're never going to reach for the stars, uh, metaphysically, physically, etc. You know, uh, let's not let's not diminish the value of idealism, even though we know we may not achieve all of it. And as you say, let's tweak our behavior without being unrealistic about humanity. Um, so I'd say that first. Uh, secondly, <clears throat> I would say, again in In writing the overview effect toward the end, I realized that this was too big a job for one country, one company, one group, um, that uh, first of all, we've talked about evolution and one of the aspects of what we may be laying the foundations for is speciation, where we may evolve even beyond where we are today to a point where we're far more adapted to the space environment, Uh, are we ready for that? Uh, What about the use of artificial intelligence in, in this exploration, are we ready for that? So I proposed in the very first edition of the book, a human space program, which I called a central project for all of humanity to explore the universe. And we now have a nonprofit corporation uh, in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts called the Human Space Program. And we're trying to make our contribution just as you are and Space for Humanity, our contribution is going to be a uh, blueprint built on the work of 16 task forces to confront all the more difficult challenges, the ethical challenges, economics, sociological, political, as well as engineering, confront the challenges and come up with a blueprint that can be tested. We want to run computer simulations to see if that plan works. And the goal here you know, you ask me, what is my wish? My wish, mo- more than anything, is for a global conversation so that humanity talks about this and we don't blindly stumble into the next big aha oh nobody told me about that you know what is that going to be um and that's what i'm really looking for i have my ideas i could tell you what i think we should do and what what we would do if i were in charge of the world but we've done enough of that you know where one person tells us this is the way no i don't want to do that i want there to be a global human conversation. And, you know, when we talk about our future in space, that's our future. The Earth is in space already. We are in space. Uh, Katie Coleman, former astronaut said, um, the Earth is our ship, our spaceship. Uh, Space, space is our home. And that's another part of the astronaut interviews that surprises people astronauts come back and say i felt really at home out there isn't that kind of strange it's <laughs> <laughs> you know it definitely it doesn't look very homey but there's something about our species i think we are called to go and i think that's part of the evolutionary part that we've been talking about
0: frank you have been a great influence on even our work here at deep space predictive uh even in my personal work uh you what you're doing to make sure that we keep a hold of that transformation of the human what it means to be a human as it is a great big technological conversation in a way you have been the caretaker the uh steward of what it means to keep our soul uh in the conversation of space exploration and we are deeply indebted uh you know on behalf of deep space predictive and human everywhere we are uh, incredibly honored to have you as our first guest on our first podcast And uh, this is fantastic. And I think on that note, uh, we can sign off. Uh, Thank you to our co-hosts, to Aliris, Mark, Ubi, and again, Frank. Thank you very much for being our guest. And so on behalf of Human Everywhere, thank you, everybody. And we will catch you at our next episode.
2: Take care. Take care.